Welcome to the Ask Brian Podcast Radio Show, where you'll hear from some of the most successful founders and CEOs of businesses and startups, sharing their best advice for success, and even some stories on how their mistakes actually make them even more successful. Now, here are your hosts, Brian and Tracy. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You're listening to the Ask Brian Radio Show on KHS. 1220 and 98.1. All right. Well, for those listeners who have never listened to our show every week, and we've been doing this now for over six years, each week we interview either the CEO of a company, the founder of something new, or somebody who can teach you something about business. That's what we like to do on the Ask Brian Radio Show, and we do it each and every week. So put it down Thursday, 1 to 2 p.m. If you want to listen to us live on the radio, or live on Facebook, that's the way to listen. Also, if you miss an episode, don't worry. We have a podcast. It's available on Apple, Spotify, and all the major podcasts for Ask Brian, A-S-K-B-R-I-E-N. And with the E, we're going to try to explain to you why, why is Ask Brian spelled with an E. For that, we have my co-host, Tracy, who's going to help us out. So please explain one of the reasons why S. Brian, and Brian is spelled B-R-I-E-N, because most people spell Brian B-R-I-A-N or B-R-Y-N. Very few people spell it with an E, unless they're the Irish descent via Brian family. So, why? <laughs> well, not to mention that your name's Peter, so that's even more complicated. <laughs> well, we like to focus on the E's because... We're entrepreneurs, and we interview entrepreneurs, and so that's our number one E, but we have several other ones, and one of them is is that this show, because we're entrepreneurs, educates other entrepreneurs, and that is incredibly important when you're starting out a business. You really need some resources to help shortcut that learning curve, so we're all about the E's with the entrepreneurs educating, and we do that by having experts on our show. And what is an expert? What does that mean? So, I mean, I'm an expert eater. I can eat so much watermelon, it's incredible. And no one cares. But <laughs> what they do care about, <laughs> what, what they do care about is how many hours you committed to your area of expertise professionally. And we do know, Peter, that you have a lot of hours allocated to your expertise in the law. And uh, so with an expert, we have some math. I'm going to try to get it right, but, you know, I'm blind, and I like to use that as an excuse every now and then if I'm not 100% sure about the math. Yeah, and it's definitely about to roll out. Point, but go ahead. <laughs> I know, right? And no one cares. <laughs> <laughs> but on average, entrepreneurs supposedly, which is such not a fact, that they work 40 hours a week. We know they work more like 60, 70, 80 hours a week, not to scare you, but that's the real deal. So a minimum of 40 hours a week over the course of 50-ish weeks, because we do hope at least you take some vacation. And then that times five years will give you about 10,000 hours plus. And if you've invested 10,000 hours of your life into one specific subject matter, as both of us, you and I have probably more like 80,000 hours, which was just last year, then that makes you an expert. And we have some amazing experts on our shows, which we have a very special one today that I can't wait to introduce. Well, for the first time, I'm impressed. 
That was very good. Usually you have difficulty, and I'm the mathematician <laughs> of the group, and I usually have to go through that. So that was pretty good. I've been good. practicing. Uh, I've been <laughs> you probably have been practicing. Now, one of the things that you did allude to, which is correct, we probably should revise this and say probably two and a half years because, as you say, you're probably working 80 hours a week, and so 50 hours, so that's, you know, if you do it that way, you can probably take it down to two and a half years and split it because that's how many hours you have to work. There's no entrepreneur that I know that starts something that can really work, you know, 40 hours a week and be successful. You need to put in the time. You know, it's the old adage, you know, if you don't put in the time, you can't succeed, and that's what you need. You need that time. You need the effort. And by the way, E for effort has never, ever been introduced, but I'm going to bring in a new oh, E this week. E for that effort. That is a good one. But in order to put in all of that time and all of that effort, you really need some energy. <laughs> so and excitement. And enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the reasons why we love our ease, and I have a particularly favorite E. I don't know if you, I'm pretty sure I know you know what that E is, but. Grease lightning. I love this one so much, I sing it in my head, because we, Peter, are electrifying. <laughs> woo And I have, yeah. I have chills, and they're multiplying. Yeah. <laughs> Our guest, if he hasn't said, what am I doing? I'm going to speak to my team, because I don't know why I'm here. Why do I care about these E's? If he's still around, and hopefully he is. <laughs> we do need to get to the show. The show must go so, on. All right. The show must go on. Exactly. So without you know I mean? further ado, adieu, A D I E U. All vowels are performing. So, are you still still there, or did I? And by the way, our guest his name is Justin Winder. If I'm pronouncing correctly, hopefully I am. He has a he's a, quite a background. And so, first of all, Justin, we'd like to introduce you. So, give us a little bit of you know, a very very short summary of your background. Um, your, your work history and what you've done, a couple of things here and there, just major points. Well, I would definitely consider myself an entrepreneur. It's what I uh, majored in in college and my university at Northeastern University, which uh, was pretty interesting as well, as being it was a uh, university that we ultimately had a co-op program and got to work as well as go to school half uh, the year. But my primary business is in IT. I don't know how I can throw an E in there, but excellence uh, or excellent IT services. Uh, well, there's an E in technology. There is in services. There's two E's as well. Absolutely. I like, I like, I like how you're kind of getting in with the program. You understand the whole E system here. And we're not Sesame Street for business, by the way, but we should be. Actually, Northeastern, I'm very familiar with that school. That's up in Boston, and people don't know this about me, but I did spend my first year in college at the University of Rhode Island. And we did drive up to Boston, Quincy Market, that area, and uh, that was pretty nice. And I transferred to University of Buffalo for my last three years. But So I do know the area very well, and that's a very good school. So when you say you're in IT, explain to us what areas of IT you're, you're involved in. Yes, so a very interesting question. Today, I would tell you that we are involved in almost all the aspects because of the fact that we... Our business is located uh, in the U.S., at least in Southern California, uh, where we have mostly small to medium-sized businesses. Most of the large enterprises have 
um, taking advantage of, uh, of moving out of state. And so small to medium-sized businesses ultimately uh, need almost, in a sense, like total outsourcing. So they need assistance with anything and everything within IT. So SMS today is comprised of a data center here located in Irvine, California. Uh, we have a 40,000-square-foot uh, data center where we provide co-location services. And we can get into what those services are later and what co-location means. But uh, we provide co-location, managed services. So we we handle end customers' IT services at their location, so all the way down to the desktop. So we'll manage their network, their server or, or compute infrastructure and application, as well as their desktop. And then the other service that we provide is private managed cloud. So if people heard of AWS or have heard of Microsoft Azure, those are public clouds. We ultimately provide a private managed cloud, difference really being in the fact that uh, we manage. So in a public cloud, you ultimately are self-provisioning. You're managing that infrastructure uh, with your own resources, where our service is one where we provide the labor and the management of the, that infrastructure. So do you keep the machine, do you keep the servers and of, of your clients up and running, do, or, or do they have to do any monitoring on that end? Is that what you mean by the private handling of the cloud, that you're kind of checking on it and making sure that everything is running smoothly, or is it beyond that? That's a good question. There's two answers to that. So if the customer has their own servers, we can manage those servers at their location, or we could migrate those servers into our data center, creating their own basically cloud. And we will manage and take responsibility for those servers and the applications that are installed on those servers, whether they're in our data center co-located or whether they're at the customer's uh, headquarters. Private managed cloud means that they do not have servers. They're renting the computing, so renting the servers from us. And ultimately, the application is something that we're also installing and managing, as well as the infrastructure. So the difference between a private managed cloud and co-location is that there's hardware included in a private managed cloud versus co-location or managed services where the customer's providing the hardware. Do they need to download any software? I mean, you're providing the hardware or they're providing the hardware, but do they need to install like your software on it? No, uh, Typically, what the customer would do would give us access to either media or an account where we would then download that software and install that on their behalf. The key, though, is the application is just an empty application until you populate it with data. So a lot of the times, if if we're providing a customer a hosted application in a new environment, then there's also a data migration that occurs. I was just about to ask you that because... Many, many clients, and in fact, I've even done it myself with some of my websites, and that can be a very difficult thing when you have to migrate over. So there was a company, I think it was called Liquid Web or something along those lines. So there was a company called Liquid Web, and I believe that I had to migrate all my data over there. So that was a very difficult process, but they were able to help me out. So if that's something that your company offers, that can be very beneficial because I know 
that when you've got a lot of data to transfer, it's not easy to do. Correct. That's absolutely correct. The other, though, thing that occurs in our industry today is virtualization. And so with, for instance, VMware or even with uh, Hyper-V, which is Microsoft's product, uh, with virtualization, you can virtualize ultimately the, the hardware, uh, the application, in a sense, as well as the data. And so with virtualization, migrating and moving applications and data becomes much, much easier. And then there's tools to be able to convert those files. So when you ultimately, for instance, in VMware's world, the file is called a VMDK file. That file ultimately encapsulates the, in a sense, the hardware. And when I say hardware, it's not physically encapsulating hardware, but in order to run on specific hardware, you have to have drivers. And so those drivers and and all that needed within that hardware is included, as well as the operating system and the data uh, associated within that uh, application. Uh, and so you can take, in a sense, a snapshot or a picture of that at, at, at a point in time, and you can then move all of that, which makes it much easier to do migration between various clouds if the they're virtualized. And in today's world, most things are virtualized for efficiencies and cost reasons. So what are the three biggest challenges that your customers face in today's technology environment? Give us the top three. I would say cost, honestly, uh, today. I would say a year or two ago, security, but I would say cost, security, and uptime. And how do you make it easier on those three issues? So, I mean, I don't want to get into pricing per se, so we're going to kind of skip that one because pricing is pricing. People can look, go to your website and check that out. But let's go over the other two. So how do you, on security, how do you make it the sites more secure for your customers? What are you doing that's making it more secure? Okay, so there's security is something that ultimately isn't a layered approach. There's no such thing as completely secure in the IT world. To be honest, if anyone tells you that, then you should be very skeptical. Well, I'm the scared is, now about the nuclear facilities, but okay, go ahead. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right? Well, hopefully nuclear facilities require only local access, which well, <laughs> the fact of the matter is that it probably doesn't, and people have oversight you know, from other locations. And as long as you have physical connections between those other locations, then in a sense, you still have a LAN. But once you talk about a LAN, right, which is kind of... And that's local area network, right? Local area network is LAN. Wide area network is WAN. And WAN is, think of WAN as the internet. And so if something can come in a door, then something also can go out of a door. And those doors in... The IT world are called ports. So if a port is open to send information out, then it's very possible that someone could sneak in that door to come in. And that's the reality of information is that nobody's just physically connected with a console connection right to a computer and that no one else has a, a connection to it. Of course, it's being broadcast to multiple potentially desktops or even to the web for clients to access or third parties to access. So 
So yeah, at the end of the day, security and port have to be uh, opened as well as then protected and, and closed. And so with security, you have these different layers. And so as you have a door open, you have multiple checkpoints to validate what's coming in and, and ultimately what's coming out. And so there's multiple layers and different technologies and approaches to securing a network. And what can you do for the customer? So if I, if I signed up with your service, what can you do for me in that security area? You're going to monitor that to make sure that the doors don't open so that nobody gets into my system? Is that what you're going to do? What exactly? How do you help out? So there's, so when I say layers, so monitoring or is, is just one layer. It's obviously not a proactive or reactive measure. It's just more of visibility. And so there's products, for instance, as simple as antivirus. Antivirus software or endpoint protection, same thing, is probably your very first layer. From there, there's firewalls that can be put into place. There can be intrusion detection as well as intrusion prevention system. There are many different layers, and so it's based ultimately on the criticality of the customer's data as well as matching that ultimately with their budget. So obviously, too, you know, perpetrators that are trying to penetrate or break security typically are going after entities, known entities, or entities that they feel have some sort of high financial uh, worth uh, that they feel that they ultimately could potentially penetrate and, at the end of the day, extract financial gain. Tracy, you there? <laughs> the Pivot Queen is back. Hello. Woo! I'm excited. <laughs> so, Justin, when we opened the show, you talked about how that you have been an entrepreneur and your journey as an entrepreneur, I think, is going to be incredibly interesting to our audience. Can you tell us about just a snapshot of the businesses that you have started and run? All right. So first, ultimately, was got involved with an SMS data center, and SMS data center is an IT services company. And being involved in a IT service company, you have the luxury to experience some of your customers' businesses and, and operations. And honestly, that's one of the things that gets me so excited about IT. But at the same time, opportunities come with investment as well as ultimately with acquisition. So we've had a few customers where they're in a position, sometimes have financial constraints, others have exit strategies, and we've ultimately been able to come in and, and acquire or help um, salvage their, their businesses. So one of the businesses we've acquired managed services companies, so within our same sector, as well as acquiring companies that somewhat have some related uh, experience. So for instance, ART, Automatic Response Technologies, is a voice broadcast company that we have acquired. It was ultimately a customer that we acquired. And I'm also involved in commercial real estate. So having data centers and people with offices and whatnot have also moved us into diversifying into commercial real estate. We have other companies like 
ART that are under our umbrella as well that uh, are have different technology plays that play on either our private managed cloud or or ultimately managed services uh, that we ultimately are continuing to operate and run. That is a lot of different areas. And I mean, first of all, I want to highlight something that you said, because I, I think this is something a lot of business owners don't actually think about when they think about scaling their businesses. So this is why I want to highlight what you said. So in your existing business, you are also acquiring other businesses, which is really one of the fastest ways that people can scale a business if they have the financial resources to be able to acquire other businesses in their sector. This enables them to buy other books of business that are similar to theirs or buy, invest in other teams that might have a skill set that they need to grow. So I applaud you as a growth strategy. I'm assuming, like we're talking about, that that's one of the reasons you can accelerate the growth of your existing business, correct? Absolutely. As well as then, right, offsetting costs. So when companies ultimately have high IT costs, Ultimately, there can be synergies between the two organizations if the owner operator wants an exit strategy. And ultimately, we leverage then our internal infrastructure to offset a lot of those costs with, you know, the opportunity for growth, right? I mean, at the end of the day, just offsetting costs from one vendor to another isn't necessarily a business strategy. But if that comes with the ability to invest and enhance that business and grow the business, then ultimately uh, there's a lot more strategy associated. Are there any particular challenges that come with that strategy? Have you walked into any gotchas or have you found any gems in your experience in doing that? Absolutely. There's always challenges. Things always change. And, and the truth is, is that all companies have a few skeletons in the closet. So Absolutely. Once you, you get involved into the business and you better understand the finer details, you realize that, you know, there's things that you need to address and overcome, you know, and a lot of that honestly has to do with people and, and then their, their strategy is towards of, you know, attracting and onboarding customers. And when you are trying to integrate teams, do you ever run into any kind of like personality complex or redundancy and how do you handle that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's any entrepreneur, anyone who's run a business, uh, regardless of what industry we're in, we deal with needing to, to manage people. And, and that's, uh, that's an art in itself. So, you know, I'm lucky to have some great talent around me who are probably more keen on personalities and keen on how to integrate teams. And to me, there's a little bit of marketing, a little bit of sales. But ultimately, I believe it comes down to communication and being transparent with communication to what I would call a new badged employee. And communication in itself, especially with technology, because technology is always changing, as you know, more than anyone, but also generational communication has changed so much. Have you had experiences where you're having to alter or adjust your communication styles, either not just maybe the style of the communication itself in terms of how you're communicating, but also the formats of which you're and how you're communicating in terms of email versus text versus in person and things like that. So like I said, I have a good team that helps me with those things. I wouldn't say that I'm the most affluent 
with those specific topics. But what I'll tell you is I believe that, you know, in-person communication is key so that you ultimately have the opportunity to read people's uh, facial expressions and presence. And that that is definitely important with communication. So, you know, sometimes taking a step step backwards to take two steps forward can make more sense in those circumstances. Yes, I agree. And I think everyone has their own communication style. But if one thing is consistent, and that is what you mentioned before, is your transparency and authenticity. And if you are consistently showing up and utilizing your authenticity and transparency as a tool, then I think your communication, you're already ahead of the majority of leaders. Would you agree? I definitely agree. And I think that people, you know, they appreciate those things because they ultimately have uh, skepticism. They have fear. They have anxiety around change. And, and it ultimately, communication helps with that. So trying to perfect your communication, trying to wait until the right time, sometimes those things aren't the, the right approach. And so I think being transparent, being genuine is definitely key and, and realizing that you're dealing with people and their lives. And, you know, most of us have jobs. I would hope to say all of us have jobs. But the fact is, is that we spend a lot of our time away from our family, you know, our hobbies, our friends uh, at work. And that's a significant portion of our life. And so, you know, having stability there and and transparency is is absolutely uh, paramount. Tracy, you have some more questions? Yeah. So, you mentioned sales and marketing in, in a different context when we were talking before, but I would love to spend some time talking about your experiences with sales and marketing, what works for your business, and maybe even what hasn't worked, because sometimes we learn more from what we don't want to do or don't like than what's worked well. So I was curious if you could give us an outline of what your current sales and marketing strategy is. All right. That's a good question. So to be honest, I would tell you that there's we have many strategies, and uh, if you were to judge it on a scale uh, of success, which I believe is you only have to be 51% uh, right to be then successful, I would tell you pretty much all of them are unsuccessful. I don't think there's anything that gets us over 50%, for instance, a conversion or sale. We ultimately are involved with email uh, marketing. We're uh, involved with search engine optimization. We do um, direct. So we're actually going out and, and knocking on doors. We have ultimately word of mouth and, and then also channels. So channels are indirect uh, sales through partners. And a combination of them all ultimately assists us with bringing on customers. But I wouldn't say that um, that one is, is better than the other. They all somewhat complement each other and, and all have to be worked from start to finish. And that really leads me into asking a question about the what is the level of the team that you currently have? Like what size is your team and what different roles do your team members play? Well, SMS globally is comprised of around 600 employees. Here in the U.S., we're comprised of around over 50 employees. And so within our marketing department, there are four employees that are working 
within that department and each have some different skill sets and, and collaborate all together from the strategies I've mentioned earlier. Oh, great. Wow. That's a lot of people. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Specifically, your sales department. So you were talking about the different touch points that you have digitally for marketing. Do you have different levels of business development people on your team and how do they work with clients? Absolutely. Um, so what we call, most companies would call maybe, for instance, a, a salesman or, or an account manager. We call an FSM, a functional solutions manager. And then we also have pre-sales engineers. Uh, so the pre-sales engineer is more technical, where the functional solutions manager is more functional or focused more on the business. And so between, there's a team type strategy. Uh, once in a while, if things get too technical, they might even bring in an engineer, a systems or network engineer. Uh, and so we, uh, sales happens more in a team approach, the FSM being the, the lead and bringing in resources uh, as needed to address the customer's requirements and needs. And ultimately, sales comes down to building trust. And that's what we're looking to do with, with our customers from our initial sales strategy is, is building trust and ensuring that the customer understands that there is depth and layers within our organization. Yes, I think that is so incredibly important when you're talking about long-term customer relationships, and especially in the industry that you focus on, it's so important for a business owner to feel like that they can trust their partner in that way and build that long-term relationship. I agree. When you have access to data and you have access as an administrator in IT, you know, to your ERP or financial system, to even simply as your email, there absolutely has to be a level of trust. No different, you know, clerks or accountants within a, uh, you know, an accounting department uh, or underneath a CFO. Yes, all of this information that you're providing is incredibly valuable, and the whole context of cybersecurity is so important. What would be a great way for someone who would like to continue this conversation with you to get reach out? Well, I think that uh, they can reach out to us via our website, which is at www.sms, Sam Mary Sam, data center, uh, singular, dot com. Or they can give us a call at 949-223-9220. Fantastic. And for all of you who are listening to the show and want to reflect back on some of the tips that were shared today or go back and listen to some of our previous episodes, do not forget about the Ask Brian podcast. That's A-S-K-B-R-I-E-N podcast. You can search for it on all of your favorite listening platforms. That's Apple, that's Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio. You name it, we're on it. And be sure to download this episode and follow the podcast for future episodes. Peter? Thanks, Tracy. So one of the questions people have been asking is, do you work with retail people, like somebody so that needs to Yeah, absolutely, retail customers. We absolutely do. We have. Uh, we typically aren't necessarily working with just a retail store. 
but we're working with a uh, corporation that is running retail stores, whether that those are restaurants, whether those are, you know, multiple retail locations. We absolutely do. And what we've primarily are focused on uh, with those customers at the retail location is network uptime and network security. Does that apply at all to credit card systems? Because I know, and this may be, I may be overstepping, but do you have any, any systems in place that can help with like something, I know the squirrel system or other types of debit and credit card systems? Do you do anything along those lines? So to be honest with you, managed services companies, IT service companies absolutely work with those systems every day, but there are subject matter experts or ultimately vertical expertise in this space. So typically what occurs with, if it was a website and we're doing more e-commerce, then there is a payment gateway that we could assist and ultimately plug into a website. But if we're talking about a retail location, they typically have POS systems, and those POS systems are provided by third parties. The key with the POS system is what I referenced a little earlier, and that has to do with network uptime. So the POS system, as long as it has internet or network connectivity, ultimately will function as long as there's no application issue with regard to the vendor providing that POS and payment gateway. And so we absolutely get involved in there and ensure and monitor the network uptime. And and then when ultimately there's an issue between the POS system and the application provider, that's where it would be escalated within our environment. And, and we would work on our customer's behalf with their vendor to ensure uh, whatever application issue is ultimately resolved. And that's another area that, let's say it's a restaurant. Again, they're not IT people. They need someone on their behalf to push back, to defend ultimately where where they're coming from and, and ultimately what functionally and technically is going on. And it's not necessarily defend. It's more about bringing technical information to the vendor so that together we ultimately can solve the problem. What about something like ransomware? Do you have anything to do with that? Oh, wow. That's a big question, a topic in itself, but absolutely. Ransomware is, is something that is very prevalent in today's world, primarily is occurring via users and the desktop. That's typically the entry point of ransomware, and it's simply through an email. Somebody clicks on something, somebody opens up a file, uh, or an attachment, and ultimately can introduce what uh, is called malware. And through that malware, the perpetrators are ultimately able to harvest credentials. And through harvesting these credentials, credentials are usernames and passwords, they ultimately try to get to the administrator password. And once they're able to get there, they're able then to strategically launch a ransomware attack. And ransomware is nothing more than encryption. So you're encrypting someone's data. In a sense, you're locking their data and you're waiting ultimately for the ransom to give the keys to unlock that data. We have just a little bit of time left. So just give us your best tip that somebody can do to protect themselves. The first thing to do is email security 
And that's a product we would call uh, security as a service email. And so we have a product that we provide to secure your emails. And uh, ultimately, when these uh, malware or files are, are sent to be clicked, they're quarantined before they ever get to the user. And the second piece is ensuring that you have a next generation or AI-based endpoint protection solution. And ours uh, that we have, that we provide our customers a security as a service, EP, or endpoint protection. And those pieces of software can ensure that when you try to run an executable file to encrypt the data, that that software will stop the executable file from starting and therefore stop the encryption from happening. Great advice. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, we're out of time. We'll have you back on another episode. You've provided us great information. You've been listening to the S. Brian Radio Show on KTS 1220 and 98.1 FM. Thank you very much. Until next week, over and out. Thank you for tuning in to the Ask Brian Radio Show. You can listen to us every Thursday on KTHS AM 1220 and FM 98.1 or via Facebook Live or anytime wherever you listen to your podcasts. Visit askbrian.com to join the conversation and ask us your business questions and we'll answer them on our next episode. That's askbrien.com.